It is so great to be back again on this spring day with Matthew Allison. Oh. Matt's in South Dakota enjoying a 70 degree day and I'm in California enjoying a 70 degree day. So, <laughs> And it's lovely to be this Monday after our celebration of the resurrection yesterday. So good to have you here, Matt. You and I have been talking about um, a number of things that have to do with rootedness and, and um, spatial conformity to places, which all sounds a little bit arcane, but it's really going to be very, very practical. So I want to get us started with, uh, with a video that you pointed me to of Mary Harrison, Mary Harrington in conversation with Glenn um, oh there it is sorry you see that now yes Mary Harrington in conversation with Glenn Scribner of Speak Life and she is going to start talking um, about transhumanism we're going to probably have to listen to three or four minutes of this to get the drift of what she's saying but it's very interesting let me know if you can hear it well enough to interrupt or upgrade if they get in the way of our desire. So, so, so this is, so, so this is the, the moment of the sexual revolution. And to my eye, that moment of the, of the colonization of women's bodies by capital yeah, has, has set off, you know, it sets women constitutively at odds with our own bodies, you know. What she means here about the invasion of women's bodies by capital is um, the, the beginning of the use of the birth control pill because effectively that makes women dependent on pharmaceuticals in order to have what they want. And so it's like your body has been invaded by this chemical that is provided by the good capitalists. That's her perspective. As the price of liberal emancipation um, in, in ways which have been played out. I've, I've, in the book, I've unpacked three, three large scale patterns of what I call the war on relationships which is to say though it wages war on the relationships between men and women which had previously been governed to a degree and you know for better or for worse by an understanding of asymmetry and of some interdependence it sets off a relation a war on the relationship between mothers and babies because the because natural normal fertility is interrupted and increasingly commodified and downstream of that, you start to see the component parts of fertility being broken down and further commodified, for example, in the marketization of gametes or the, the incursions of the fertility industry into the business of reproduction. And even the disassembly of gestation and motherhood um, through the commercial surrogacy industry. Um, and, and, and then finally, we start to see it in the war on relationships between, between ourselves and our own bodies. And this isn't just confined to women. This is this is a logical extension of the turning inward of capital into to, into the human body and the the enclosure and commodification of the human body that start, that begins with the transhumanist turn in the sixties. Um, and and we perhaps I think the most sort of culturally contentious instance of that at the moment is the the transgender activists, the transgender movement, you know, people who claim the right to remodel their bodies as they see fit in line with their inner felt sense of self. And it's, it's particularly contentious where, where it concerns children. Um, I've, 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 dis I've discussed this at some length in the book, but to my eye, this is continuous with and extends much further into um, 
the enclosure and commodification of the human body to the point where and uh, and, I, and I think the the driving force is is much is is in is to much deep much more deeply strange places fundamentally this the 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 those who would commodify the human body don't really care about people who feel that their gender and their bodies are misaligned. They don't really care about that. If they did, if they did, they would treat people who detransition with as much compassion as they treat people who want to transition. They would treat people who are going back the other way towards embodiment with the same right. generosity and the same care. But they don't. And this is this is because, um, in my view, you to to seek a greater degree of of connection with your own body is to blaspheme against against the basic belief that we're radically dissociated from our bodies and thus entitled to remodel them as as we will okay so when she gets to talking here about remodeling your body as you will that's that's pretty much a definition of transhumanism right <clears throat> the idea that she goes into def defining transhumanism as um rejecting the idea that there is such a thing as human nature and instead looking at it as though humans aren't limited, aren't limited by any sort of intrinsic nature, but can be improved. And um, of course, the minute I hear that, and that it is what's been happening for a long time, is the idea that human bodies can be improved. What jumps into my mind is in, in the old days, when I first started worrying about this back in the late 70s and 80s, it was the whole problem with the behaviorists that the behaviorists could modify your behavior and get you to act the way they want you to act, which is lovely if you're asking them to help you with that. But if you're not, and you're, it's happening to you, then you have to think, who are the modifiers, right? And uh, nowadays, it's a different set of improvements. I was thinking about Elon Musk's neural implants and uh, cosmetic surgery and biomolecular therapies that rewrite our code and even to like auto voice tuners all the new singers today have a an app that they use that tunes their voice automatically so they never sound out of key and you might think that's a good thing until you listen to it and then it sounds like a machine instead of a person you know so so yeah so why did you want to talk about transhumanism <clears throat> Because I think it's the breakaway from the experience of reality. So outside of reality, if you see it as a bubble or a circle, there radiates perhaps the fringe of the reality. And then no longer. And beyond that is anyone's guess. So it sounds exciting from the fringe side of things. But when you go beyond the fringe, they come back in fragments. This is very sad. Even if they're bodily put together, the damage done to one psyche, I think, is uh, on the record. Whether it's changing body parts or changing ideological commitments. And so as the novelties grow in alignment with the efficiency of different procedures and technologies that deliver the procedures 
and then frameworks that deliver the technologies, which deliver the procedures, which then builds up a shorthand and buzzy words that allow us through major channels to communicate about results. So this all sort of settles in as normal. I think the hunger for the real will manifest because of the poverty of the real. But I don't think we're there yet. And so now it's very flashy and provocative, but why not go ahead of the curve and simply seek the real? That's where I was coming from on the other side of her thesis. Well, yeah, it's really interesting that to look at it from that perspective, because as I was listening to her, and I mean, I, full disclosure here, I've been a capitalist for a long time. <laughs> I don't believe in using that terminology because I think that's giving ground to the enemies of, of the free market. I'd much rather use the, the terminology of the free market or of Austrian economics. But when I start thinking about this stuff, every single one of the avenues of transhumanism, there's a through line and that through line is money. And that money generally comes from some sort of pharmaceutical that you end up being dependent on, whether it's um, the birth control pill or, or transgender hormone therapy or um, Botox, <laughs> you know, any, the, almost every way that people want to improve themselves, it comes with a huge price tag and not just a one-time price tag, but a long continuing month by month by month price tag throughout your life. And I have to kind of agree with her when I first started listening to her talk and she was always ragging on about capitalism. I thought, what's her problem? But then as I listen to her longer, I go, you know, that is some way that, that some twist has happened in capitalism, which maybe is inevitable, where they find a way in, where they just have a continuing money stream. You know, it's very much like a lot of the tech companies used to sell you a product. Now they sell you a monthly service mm. because the monthly service gets you on the hook for the rest of your life. Mostly because people forget they've paid, they, they signed up for the monthly service and then they just keep paying for it without even thinking about it. You know, like the old storage facility where you had a hundred dollars worth of stuff in storage for 15 years and it ended up costing you a half a million dollars. <laughs> so yeah, anyway. I think that connects to education somehow. Novelty can be expressed in a number of ways, but if it's to break ground, it has to be consistent internally. It can't be everything, in other words. So as you said, if a subscription is sold for a service, and the idea is that the subscription goes ad infinitum because the service always will be needed, then either it's water or shelter. But it's if it's neither one of those things, then you have to persuade me that it's just as good. And then the task of the, of the company becomes, how do we convince ourselves and then the user that this is 
always worthy of a piece of their labor, of a piece of their life. And when you pose it that way, it doesn't sound much different than an idol made of silver, made of gold. And I'm not trying to sound archaic, but it's an insidious form of capturing attention. Because what is $10 a month? It's a little bit of attention you gave to something in a 40-hour work week. But it's fallen through the crack. Oh, don't worry, we'll take care of that. And that liturgy of worship, which was a total of two, two nanoseconds in a year, in a month, that now has a place designated that didn't exist before. But I, as the user, am unaware. And you just add those things up, and now you have this market, which wasn't around before. And I think that's fascinating, because we don't isn't have the, the... Isn't the marketing yes. ploy always fear? How so? Well, if you don't have this, you're not going to you're not going to fit in. Or if you don't have this, you're not going to be as up to date as other people. Or if you don't have this, like in the old days, they used to use this to market certain skin products to women. Oh, the dreaded age spots have arrived, you know? And so if you don't, if you don't cover up your age spots, people are going to know how old you are. (laughs) If you don't use this kind of toothpaste, your teeth won't be white and then people will make fun of you. I mean, every single bit of it is, is based on fear and and all this stuff is based on fear too you know um if you don't if you don't use the birth control pill you might have a child you don't want if you don't um i don't know i i just think fear is is a very um ubiquitous marketing tool Maybe not right. everything is based on fear, but certainly a lot of it is. I would agree with you. And I think part of that is there's genuine fear and then there's the substitute. I hear thunder. I'm standing next to a very tall stainless steel pole. I should do something now. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a there's a get up and go with that fear. But the sort of fear which masks itself as lightning when it is not lightning mm-hmm. is, to use a Jonathan Peugeot term, parasitic on the fight or flight inbuilt organization that is somehow tied, really tied to our nature. And so I think one of the things, these multiple, the field of possibility that now exists for such companies to come and go, come and go. Maybe one person in their lifetime would have five or six expressions of a company where they try to make profit by calling a lightning, calling an X a lightning bolt and then getting you to buy now or subscribe now or get jump on the boat with us as mm-hmm. we go to this place, whatever it may be. And then, ah, it didn't work out, but I'm learning, right? I'm learning to be an entrepreneur. I'm learning to get my hands wet and dirty. Well, all of that to me, that field of possibility assumes a backdrop of human nature. And to me, if I were to characterize that nature, it would be we're pliable, we're neutral, we're kind of cloudy, 
And so if most of the time, because of a lack of education, and I mean that in a religious sense, because of a lack of education, our thoughts about ourselves are cloudy, murky, open to suggestion, then that must actually reflect our nature. And so, yes, I don't, I don't expect a bar of soap to solve my problems. Much better to subscribe to a company that's concerned for my hygiene. And then together we'll go on a journey where I pay money and you give service and we're going to figure out what hygiene means for the rest of my life. That's very scary because it doesn't take human nature very seriously. It doesn't even identify it. Yeah, it identifies because, it as a there, space because there is such a thing as the real, right? I mean, there is the real. And if you don't take the real seriously, then uh, you, you mentioned something about it in one of your emails to me. I thought it was just really good what you said. Maybe I'll bring it up here and take a look at it. Um, you said, yeah, well, anyway, the world is the world. The self is the self. Identity discriminates on the basis of what is being referred to. Um, well, you made this one comment, and maybe you could explain to me what you mean by this. You said the programs executed in the breeze between the leaves and the pop of bubbles, the pop of bubbles at the base of a waterfall are in it together. And by it, I presume you mean reality. Yes. Yes. Okay. So what does that mean? The programs executed in the breeze between leaves and the pop of bubbles at the base of a waterfall are in it together. Admitted, admitted is that between between the leaves and the pop of bubbles is it that transjective or is it leaf to leaf transjective and bubble to bubble transjective so i always want to improve my writing style but so far what i'm able to do with my style is say say more with less because I don't know how to say more yet. So what I was trying to evoke is the mm -hmm. feeling that there's a lot in an interval. Hence, I just want to put I and T together. And if it's suggested information technology, fine, that's a route you could go down. But I wanted to say there's a lot in an interval. And then with time, as we're doing now, discuss that that interval is the beginning and end of our lives. And it's not long. And so what we put in there and cram matters. Now, we might think, oh, yes, 90 years. But really, that 90 years is seven chapters in my life story. And if I don't do so well in the first four, I still got three and I'll make the I'll make the second to last one count. And then the the one at the end of that will be redemption. So it's okay. Well, if life is an arena for an eternal life and the virtues carry over and and really come from the eternal future, then there isn't the luxury of saying, I have seven chapters in my life. The first four don't really matter. The fifth doesn't really matter. The sixth, I kind of get it. 
And then the seventh, I'm redeemed for all of them. In other words, boiling everything down to a decision isn't in keeping, I would say, with, and I'm going to speak from my own experiment as a Christian, the idea that this world is an arena to either develop the skills for eternal life or not. And that decision is more in the realm of habits and habit formation than in what I do for four minutes with my lips and the accident of the English language. It's or something I did when I was a teenager underneath the auspice of a hospital with blades, right? None of those things are, are habit forming. A lot of the things that are quick and easy and engineered to engage with our dopamine receptors, those are addicts, addict making. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't want to come on this hard line of, well, then we should be Luddites because there's nothing wrong with the logic behind our machines. It's very, and to my mind, manifesting of how orderly the universe is. The fact that we're able to talk through these screens and hear one another, mm -hmm. all this stuff was transformed into this logic that I have no idea about and then came back. It's so, I can't look up and see the starry night because of the cloud pollution or air pollution. But through this interaction, I'm able to, as it were, invisibly see the visible logic that is necessary for communication even to happen between gears. It's it's astound. It's a sort of starry night in this laptop. So I don't want to say poo-poo on technology, but the things that make us think we're building skills in our culture actually are building addicts and addiction pathways because of the capital motive or the profit motive, I would say. When you have a profit motive, you necessarily have something besides eternal value. <laughs> and, I, and I don't think one should exclude the other because we have to feed ourselves and our families, but there is a difference. And I think a lot of that difference has to do with thinking, and this is a Petersonian maxim, that we can change the world or change a large swath of people or fix an airplane that was damaged. <laughs> Even those complex tasks don't have to be handled by the individual. So maybe this comes back to individualism somehow. What do you think? Uh, you, you've said a lot there that, that brought up so many of the things that Mary Harrington was talking about and um, what I've been thinking about. So first of all, let me go with the habit forming thing. <clears throat> if this world is an arena for us to develop the skills for eternal life, then habit formation, spiritual formation, becomes a very important part of that life. Um, the world is working against us. They don't want us to develop habits. They want to subsume the habits or replace the habits with pharmaceutical. <laughs> if you take this pharmaceutical, you won't need that habit. You won't need to develop that habit. You know, I'm even they're even trying to come up with. Um, certain kind of drugs that can change your metabolism. So then you don't need to exercise, you know? So, so as far as they can stretch it, 
you won't need to develop habits because we've got this other thing for you. So you don't have to worry about that. Then on the building skills side of it, I think that's an essential part of just being alive, being a human being, right? But now AI is coming along and it is so good at solving all of our problems, all our intellectual problems. Any question that we have that before we might've had to struggle our way through and actually develop the mental skills to solve problems and to think through very complex ideas, that GPT-4 can spit that out in four seconds. I asked it the other day, I said, I'm reading DC Schindler, Ian McGilchrist, and um, Esther Meek. And I think there's an overlap between their ideas. What do you think? Three seconds later, it spits out a 500-word 500, 500 essay wow. on the works of those three. The first go-around was a little surfacy, so I asked a little bit more complex question. I, I changed my prompt three times. By the third time, it was deep. It gave me all my answers. If I hadn't already thought it through myself, I wouldn't have had to think it through. Now, I had thought it through, so I knew whether the machine was right or wrong or whether it was on the right track. But to me, the biggest danger of that kind of AI isn't that it's going to somehow take over the robots and you know destroy the world with cyborgs or something. It's that it's going to take over our need to develop skills and to build habits. And that's what makes us a human being. <laughs> so if we're not doing those things, we're just going to become mentally and physically flaccid and um, irrelevant. So then of course the machines win, not, not because the machine was malevolent, but just because we were willing to hand everything over to it. Um, that's a little bit of what I'm thinking about, but I wanna also address this idea of the profit motive. I think that, and I'd love to hear some people talk about this seriously. There's a needle to be threaded there where there is something necessary and healthy about the profit motive, but where these things come up, these, um, these pharmaceutical fixes and, and all these other ways that they're marketing using fear to us and everything there, I'm sure that there is some way that, a good Austrian economist could explain what it is that has gone wrong. Because I can totally see that in the last 40 years, something has shifted from a very healthy economic engine to a very unhealthy economic engine. And I don't think you can blame it all on capitalism because the same destruction has happened in every kind of a system around the world. It's not just capitalism that's in a mess. So something else has caused the problem. So if somebody wants to jump in here and and uh, and talk about that issue. So anyway, I don't want to blame everything on the almighty dollar because if people didn't have the incentive to earn money, then we wouldn't be talking through these screens. I mean, there wouldn't be technology. There wouldn't be, and maybe that's a good thing, but um, there also wouldn't be clothing and... Uh, I know people say, oh, you could do that yourselves. You could have your own little farm and make all your own clothes and everything. Yes, we could do that when the earth's population was centered in villages, but 
when you have 18 million people in a city, I mean, I just don't think that's practical, right? There has to be some sort of sharing of um, skills and sharing of resources. So I didn't want to get off in an economic thing, but but I think that would be an interesting topic for the future. So I agree. So the, back to habit forming and building skills. What did you think about that? Yeah, the and perhaps as someone will maybe say in the comments later, the Austrian economics, habit and economy, I think are part and parcel. But in a habit, I tend to think visually, you have the habit a monk or a priest wears or a nun wears, and then you have the habit of where your body parts go as you're walking or running, a runner's habit long distance is quite pronounced versus when I'm running to catch the bus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But without the real, really experienced, then the human being is nominal. It, it comes to you as a word, as this cloudy thing, people would insert biological evolution and kind of take care of the details while they eat the snicker bar and run to catch whatever, like a bus. It, it's a stand-in for not doing the work of building habits, and this is where stoicism comes in, that are appropriate to human nature. Because a stoic would say, what is appropriate to human nature is not appropriate to the other mammals because human nature is not one of the mammals. Mammal doesn't exist. Mammal is a taxonomic term for grouping together elements. And there can be arguments why they belong together. And that's where theory and experiment comes to tell the story of that. And that's all good and fine. It isolates attributes. But at the end of the day, where are you going to put all those attributes? Because we don't take our theories home. Our theories don't fall asleep. It sounds Peugeot. Our theories don't wake up. Our theories don't drink from the coffee cup. They're very good. They're helpful. They actually organize our thinking into models, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the Stoics were very practical in that they wanted to know what was under their control and what was outside their control. And the way to answer that was to get clear on what is appropriate and congruent to human nature. And it can't be the same as a bat. Let's just put that down axiomatically. A, a bat that flies. If it is, then already we're starting off on the wrong foot and we can't begin to have an intelligible conversation about appropriate habits. If we're on the level of a bat, level of a monkey, level of this, level of that, then there's no hierarchy, there's no spot to practice. There's just a cycling of interests and entertainments and vivid imagery. And like you said, there will be computers that can shuffle a lot faster than human capacity. And then we'll become entranced and excited by how fast the, its wheel moves. And so it's, it's Plato's cave where we see the shadows. So that distraction, to bring it down to a very simple word, 
is what keeps us from forming habits. A habit isn't formed overnight or in a week. It takes time and it takes human time. It doesn't take the time of an efficient computer. And so we're being bombarded with arguments not to practice forming habits. And last thing I'll say on that is just to round out the argument for why stoicism fits in with habit formation. It should be a very cutting edge argument. If you want to become a human being, the Christian would say, become a Christian. <laughs> and in order to become a Christian, go to church. And if something's keeping you from going to church, well, I've got my personal trainer and they, they meet on Sunday mornings and my health is important, is it not? So I got to be there to do my calisthenics. Can you do it on Monday? No. Can I do it on Tuesday? No. Can I do it any day except Sunday morning? No. All right. Here is the conflict. You ought to choose the church because the church gives you health, real health. The personal trainer gives you a theory of health that's always going to be modified and modulated. And you're never going to be sure you're actually measuring health with it. So, but it's not all bad, but it shouldn't be first. And the way to actually test whether or not you believe human nature is in the Christian framework and actually is being improved through the Christian framework is to say to yourself, am I willing to go to church on Sunday? If not, then don't kid yourself. It's, it, I mean, it has to be that simple because we don't have the time of a computer to run endless simulations. We have our bones, our muscles, and our soul. And my God, we can't even see our souls. And yet they're being affected far more than our DNA is being affected by whatever's coming out of the sun. Or I went to the dentist and I got the thing where they put, you have to clamp down your teeth, right? And they hit you with lasers. And I had to ask, because I'm a bit neurotic about x-rays. Should I close my eyes? Silly thing, right? It's going to go through my skin anyway. <laughs> but if I'm that concerned about my organs, I mean, Sunday morning, is it good for my soul? Is it not? I should be just as concerned. But again, proposition is one thing. Forming the habit of going, going, year after year. It's stoic, if you want a temporary word for it. It's enduring in our nature which I think is lost nowadays, enduring in our nature. So why do you think that the word stoic picked up a pejorative aspect? Because like, I, well, I think in recent years, stoicism has sort of made a rebound, right? But when I, I was, when I was in college, when they talked about the stoics, it was more with the idea of, all those Stoics, everything was all about gritting your teeth and making it through as though that were a bad thing. So is there in our, in our email exchange, I said, could we differentiate between say Jordan Peterson's idea of taking the cross and struggling up the hill under this heavy load to the city of God versus the idea of walking yoked, with Christ, who said, my, my burden is light, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So if we're walking in yoke with him, versus struggling on our own up the hill, 
Um, is one of those stoic and the other one is not, or is it a misunderstanding of stoicism? Or are they both equal? I think it's a beautiful question. And how does one square the cross of Golgotha with the yoke of, of a teacher? The yoke was a sign that you were a disciple. You were following. You were bearing the burden of your teacher. You were under his guidance, not any other rabbis. You were marked, right? <laughs> Literally, et cetera, et cetera. The, I think our you know, day the, age, the word the word yoke. I think it might be in both the Greek and the Hebrew. I'm not sure, but in one of those languages, anyway, I looked it up the other day. The word yoke has this idea of a stave or a pole. So you you could in some in a certain way think about it as the cross piece of the cross. But then in the Old Testament it also talks about breaking the bars of the yoke. So the yoke is this you know big piece of wood that goes over the two oxen and then the bars are these parts that come down around your head and hold you in place so that you can't get out of the yoke. Um, and I think it's such a beautiful picture that Christ breaks the bars of the yoke so that we're walking in tandem with him voluntarily, which gets into Jordan Peterson's whole thing about how, And maybe that does fit with, maybe that's why Stoicism is making a revival because Stoicism talks about voluntarily putting yourself in hard situations so that you can test your own capacity and you can get strengthened and you can build habits and, and all of that. And, and habits are what carry us forward when our, when our willpower is not enough at that moment. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's an investment to build a habit mm -hmm. because we're not we're there are forces which seek to uh, divert us and there will be there will be gates that unless we have it in us already to put out that hand and catch the door without thinking about the pain we might not do it so it's it's an it's a it's an investment strategy Mm -hmm. But again, a person has to consider whether or not they have things worth carrying across the sea, across the ocean. And who who's to say if they do or don't, but even trying, I think, will prove to the person that they do have much that is worth carrying over the sea. Because it's that very, what's on the other side is what gave them the deposit in the first place. The Stoics, the Stoics knew they had to endure for some reason. They called the cosmos, they called order. The Christian knows that it's, it's, it's uh, to your point, the Sabbath, the rest, the restoration, the peace. And more to the point, theosis, our being like God. Mm -hmm. in love and that you know that now comes to the the theological meaning of that word as opposed to the uh, 
the emotional valence of that word. But I'm not here to say what love is. Well, this, something that this in, in, in conjunction with that, I just want to mention that I think it's number 16 of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, maybe the one where uh, John Verveke is talking about agape in the Christian context. And he's trying to describe agape as um, he uses this illustration of how babies are sort of, babies become human as they are loved by their mothers. The mother pours love in and then the baby becomes human out of that love because the mother is continually pouring her love in and the baby is continually receiving that love and becoming more and more human. And um, not really crazy about the idea of talking about a baby becoming human because I think they're human <laughs> in the womb. But 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 there is this idea of they, they become more and more of who they will be because they're receiving this love from the mother. And, and I think that's what happens through going to church is that when you first make a decision to follow Christ and, and you read or you hear, oh, God loves you or Christ loves you. It's like, what does that mean? I, I don't feel it. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't think I know how to experience that. Maybe if I've never been loved before, how do I experience that? But through the going to church, being in community, hearing his word, worshiping him, you're in that process of receiving his love all the time. And that love is making you more and more like him. It's making you more and more of who you will be, of who you are intended to become. So, so that love is pouring into you. That agape is building you. Beautifully said. The often contemplation. I'm reading St. Maximus, the confessor. And as I was... You have a good... Yeah, tell me if... We'll put in the comments a good translation of that so that we can all share with you. Yeah, let me go grab it real quick. This take okay. two seconds. St. Maximus, the confessor, is one that Jonathan Peugeot is always talking about, and I've been wanting to read more of his work. So on difficulties in the church fathers, the ambigua, Maximus, the confessor, translated by Nicholas Constus. This is from Harvard. Ambigua. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. This is a, a priceless book. This was translated by a monk at a monastery from the original writing of a monk who lost his tongue and right hand, fingers and hand because of the insights in this book. He's one of the Cappadocian fathers, St. Maximus. He, he clearly argued for the two natures of Christ, divine and human, with one person subsisting them and those two natures never being confused. The image that comes to my mind is Christ walking on water. They were human feet, but he walked on water because he was God, is God. And those two things are not in dialectical tension. 
they're not, uh, as it were, what is that old saying? Playing their side of the street. People say, you do your business over there. I'll do mine here. Mm. They're not doing that. They're, they're without confusion is probably the best way to say it. Because mm. it's not saying it, it's not saying the positive, it's taking away confusion, the negative. But anyway, he lost a lot for upholding that argumentation. And nowadays you might not lose a tongue or fingers or a hand, but you would lose credibility on a social social media platform. And I mean, what what a comparison. It's 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 comparing pennies with pure gold. But I think it's worth noting how patterns repeat themselves through history. The temptations are temptations are temptations. And people will say, oh, it's just an academic. It's so academic. Two natures, one person, blah. Just give me my, give, I don't know, give me my what? Give me my passion. See, give me my quick fix. Mm -hmm. Our culture is teaching us how to respond. Very few religions talk to human beings eye to eye, face to face. They either talk below us or above us. Christianity sits down and talks to us. But are we willing to have the conversation and be patient and look at these things and take them seriously as they've taken us seriously. God bothers to communicate to us through his saints like St. Maximus. Are we willing to sit down and, and take him at his word as a human being and study, study, study? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm accusing myself here. So what I was doing with it is I'm slowly taking page by page in the morning. It's been weeks. And in order to study him, I've had to go into stoicism because he's arguing from their vocabulary, but using their words in an orthodox pattern. So he's weaving his theological experiences with the current stoic philosophical presuppositions. And the fact that he did that tells me he took the time to do that. You don't wake up one day and say, oh, I confuse the philosophical presuppositions of uh, the stoicism in the air with my deep subjective experiences of God. You don't wake up and do that. He had to, who knows how he did it and how much time he took. A carpenter making a table, they don't just cut down a tree and make a table. They cut down many trees and they make many poles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So some combination of skill and the life of the Christian. But nowadays, don't we see the one offered or the other, or even one offered at the expense of the other? But in him, they were fused without confusion for St. Maximus. So it's a beautiful book. It takes time. It's well worth, I think, because it's, 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 uh, it argues for something that is one of the ecumenical councils' milestones. And in our day and age, it's so slip, it's so slippery to confuse the two natures of Christ or to give one emphasis. And then not to see that as a heresy with consequences. I mean, a person prays. Why? What is prayer? Is it is it saying poetry out loud? I mean, what is it in the context of a habit? 
I, I don't pretend to know the answer, but it's an open question. And where would you like to take this? What is prayer? Is it a poem? That's that's such a big question. And I, I don't pretend to have answers particularly, but um, in the last couple of years, I have felt more and more as I pray that rather than praying, I just remember who God is and I begin to thank him for his understanding of whatever the situation is and his understanding of the people that are involved. I mean, because my husband and I um, facilitate a small group. So there's a number of people in our small group. And one of the things that we try to do is gather up prayer requests and find out where people would like us all to be praying together about something. And so we, we all, hopefully all of us have this habit of praying for one another during the week. And when I first started doing that, it was hugely difficult habit to build because it's like you get a set of prayer requests on a particular Sunday and maybe we're not going to meet again for two Sundays. For So for two weeks, I have the same prayer request every day. And I don't know, human beings seem to want innovation. Like, you know, how can I change this up? How can I change the words or whatever? And somehow over time, I just began to realize, you know, our Lord is so big and he understands all these things. He know he's the one who has the wisdom. He knows what is needed. He knows that probably it's not even the situation that this person is in that needs changing, but the person needs to be changed, transformed. And, and all the people involved in the situation probably need to be transformed. And isn't that what you're in the business of doing, Lord? You're, you're the transforming God because only he can change the heart of a king, just as mm. he can change the course of a river. So, so yeah, I've I've become more in the mode of gratitude, humility, and gratitude in prayer, and um, trying to to lean into that. And and for myself, my prayer is most always just you know transform me, make me into your image help me to see you better, um, change my heart. I appreciate your use of the word mode in that context. It, it was it was so uh, precise to my ear and it, it helped me uh, see the rest of what you said in, in its light because the uh, a beacon and the rocky shore and then those waves with their surf and their, their foam, there's a lot to consider. How how deep is the plane here? How much rock are we going to put there? And then that ocean, it seems forever, but where's the horizon? Where's that line I'm going to draw? Oh, and here's this beacon. Helpful. There we, there we stop. Helpful, period. But when you said mode, it struck me as what modes do, what a mode is for in a human being. And that's a word I, I, I want to explore because I think it, it's so helpful. We have tones. We have modes in which now I'm driving the car. 
Now I'm shutting the door. Now I'm walking away from the car. It was liturgical. I'm not driving while I'm walking away. That's impossible. Why is it impossible? Is it impossible because some mathematician figured out on real analysis how to measure a line that says they're not in coincidence? No, it's impossible because the human nature doesn't do liturgy that way. Cannot do liturgy that way. And so our desire ought to be in conformity to the place that we can do liturgy. Now, what is paradise? Again, I have no idea. But this thing we call faith, and some will say faith is divorced from works, but how can it be if we're liturgical? How can it be if we are liturgical? If city, I like, I like going to the hospital. I used to not, but I went for a teeth checkup today and I, it's fascinating. <laughs> because going to a dentist is like going to church. If one's paying attention, as you said, if we're not, if we're attending, it's such an instructive gift to go to the dentist or to go for a checkup because you have to announce, you have to show up, you're greeted, you're either found in the book of, I mean, you're either found in the computer or you're not, then you are welcomed and please sit down. We're not there yet. We're getting everyone ready in the room. You're in the waiting room. It's such a blessing to be in the waiting room because you're not anywhere else. You can't be. I'm here. I'm waiting. That's all I'm here for is to get up and go to the next spot. I'm not, you know, making dinner. I'm not getting married. I'm not getting divorced. <laughs> I'm not, you know, nothing's happening. I'm waiting, but I'm waiting in the waiting room, not underneath the tree. And you get up when you're called and then you go down the hallway with someone in front of you. Beautiful guardian angel, beautiful. Here, sit there. Okay, just tell me what to do next. And yet I'm fully active and participating. I'm a little nervous because I don't understand all these fancy techniques. And they start drilling. They go through their liturgical questioning. Prior history. Your prior history isn't everybody's prior history. And so they narrow down your life to exactly what they need to make a diagnosis. And then you're clean. Long story short, at the end of it, you're clean insofar as they can clean you. And you walk out. We have to come back to sacramental mentality. Because there's, there is in the sacrament the real. And the relief of the real and we, I think we get a glimpse of it in the waiting room, in the hallway, in the dentist chair, in going to a hospital, which is highly liturgical. Even though it has the shadow of a pharmaceutical, who knows, bottom line, blah, 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 banks overseas, blah, blah, blah. Still, it can't but be a liturgy insofar as it delivers health, even bodily health, or even preventative bodily health. Even in that small sliver of possibility for advancement in our nature, it must be through and through liturgical. To me, that's an argument for something at the, at the higher levels. It has to be. Well, so when you're using the word liturgical in this way, could you define it? And I, I don't know how to yet, but what I, what I have as my experience is when I go to church, there's a liturgy. 
And I experienced that literally. You mean it's an, it's an order of doing things. Yes. It's an order. It's an order. And in that order, nothing is arbitrary to use a, to use a. So it's a non-arbitrary order of moving through time. And I'm not there by accident, which means it's not an order that is not arbitrary and moves through time that could be accessible to a bat or a giraffe or a pair of socks. Mm -hmm. It's there for the human. And the human, by being there, mystically brings all of creation in the train. Now that's very highfalutin language, but it starts to calcify in a good way, maybe crystallize, when one begins to find pieces of themselves staying put in the liturgy. And that happens through habit. There's no other way. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not virtual. Well, I think that virtual can give you a taste, but the body has to be at the altar. And again, a fancy way of saying go to church. <laughs> it's, it's really be an American and go to church. You will be with the Christians in the first century AD. Go to church. <laughs> Isn't that all? It's all connected to attention, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, maybe this would be a good time to bring up that video with Jonathan. And um, let me see if I can find that. I believe that it was on. The email that you sent me and uh here it is saints and attention this is such i a recently had the pleasure of sitting and i will put it in the uh i'll put it in the show notes for people to want to go back and watch the whole thing it's just really excellent i think the place where he starts talking about attention is right around 25 let's give that a shot anyway i know there's something really good that happens at 25 they would have gotten a little glimpse of what your experience was, but they wouldn't have had as much of it because you were going to see St. Cuthbert's Island. They weren't. Like the, you were you were aligned towards this ins inspirational saint who is deeply embedded in the mythology of, of, of your history and of the land. And so that will that informs your experience, you know. And it's it's wonderful that we like you said, it's wonderful that it's actually not that complicated to have access to that mm. uh you know and it's and it's simple like a tourist that goes to church to visit a church and someone who goes to church to take communion are not having the same experience they don't have the same goal they don't have the same person and the tourist will have a glimpse of what the person going for communion will have a little bit and that's also probably one of the reasons why they're drawn to visiting these old churches but the person that goes up to the altar and receives communion is having a whole different level of experience. And like you said, and the space is alive in a very different way mm. for that person. And, uh, and like you said, that's available to anybody, you know? Yeah. Who would have thought? Yeah, no, it's great. It's a real blessing actually. Um, yeah. Um, could I, ask uh, a little bit more about about attention um, sure, sure. if 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 god is the source of all reality um 
what does it mean to say that reality unfolds through attention? So through attending to these things. Yeah. Um, and so you could say that the, it's a, you could say that it's a fractal, it's a fractal, it's a fractal system where well, it's not a system, but it's a, it's a fractal reality. And so all of reality is in form. It's, it doesn't have form, right? It's, it's empty and unformed. And so you have to separate and you have to point. That's how, that's how reality works. That's how it's described as, that's how creation is described in Genesis. So at first you have nothing, but you have heaven and then you have heaven and earth, right? You separate to, you separate and then you point. That's what God does. He says, this will separate from, this is separate from that. And this is this thing's name. And the act of naming in, in creation is, is an act of giving identity, you know, gathering things into identity. But the way we experience, the, we experience that in the world is attention. Right. We, we don't, we are not the source of all reality, but there's a, um, there's an analogy between creation and attention. There's an analogy between gathering multiplicity into one and giving it a name and experiencing that. Right. It's like recognizing the, 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 the identity. So it's like I'm there and I see something. I know it. Like I recognize it. And that recognition is that's what that's what attention is is made of so and so so the way to understand it is that everything has a little higher it's like a little temple right everything has a place uh, in it everything that exists has a place in it where heaven and earth meet right where the divine logos the the, the ultimate identity reason for that thing whatever it is and the potential that constitutes it meet Clink, right? It's a little point to see. Often it's represented in 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 the parables or in the different stories as like a, as as a as a seed. The mustard seed, for example, that Christ talks about. It's little, it's smallest. It, it it doesn't actually have forms. Like, and so that's like the holy of holies in the temple. It's the the place where heaven and earth meet. And then then you could say that it's like it the the reality unfolds out of that. So you could not you could. Well, I have to just say here about how something scales in the world when he's talking about this fractal thing. Somebody uh, posted on Twitter this video of a woman talking about bacteria on a TED talk. Hmm. And um, she found the, you know, how Michael Levin found the language that cells use to talk to each other when they're building something. She has found the language that bacteria use. Um, because bacteria are such very simple cells that they don't have any, um, they're not like human cells that have within them the power to make proteins and use those proteins to build our bodies. Bacterial cells are very, very simple. The only power they have is when they're all united together and doing something together. And it turns out that there's 10 times more 10 times more bacteria in our bodies than there are human cells in our bodies. And there are many different kinds of bacteria that have different tasks in our bodies to keep us protected from the outside world and to keep things functioning the way they're supposed to be functioning. Each of these different kinds of bacteria only begin to function when they come to a kind of critical mass of numbers. And it's the coming to a critical mass 
that allows their function to begin. Now, the way they determine whether or not they're at the critical mass is that um, each bacteria, outside of each bacteria, there's three little, she, she illustrates it with little triangles. Obviously, they're not triangles, but there's three little, I don't know what they are, three little parts of the bacteria that break off and go out into the spaces between the bacteria. And each bacteria gives off these little three parts. So when there are enough bacteria in a particular space, all those things that they put out into the space in between them um, have what is called a quorum sensing power. They can tell when there are enough of them for the, the activity to generate the activity starts but the way the activity starts is that every bacteria has a little notch in it and that little outer thing fits into that notch and then it clicks everything and so it's like a it's a it's a key and a lock and when this key and the lock thing happens then everything starts to work and the picture is so clear to what Jonathan was talking about there with attention, how everything has a place where heaven and earth meets. And that's the place where the activity is born. This place where heaven and earth meets. Well, in the bacteria, the place where the heaven and earth meet are in that, that uni uniting of what's outside to what's inside the bacteria that locks it in, which says, now there's enough community here for our purpose to be fulfilled. And then they fulfill their purpose, whatever it is. Sometimes that purpose is malevolent in causing a pathogen that's going to make the host sick. But in our bodies, most of the bacteria that are in our bodies are there to do beneficial things. So she's working on ways to communicate with these bacteria, both the good bacteria to help them do their job and the bad bacteria to keep them from getting this signal across, from confusing their signal. So anyway, it's amazing what people are doing, but I love the way the whole thing scaled down to that picture of, first of all, it takes a community to accomplish something. And second of all, the accomplishing begins when heaven and earth meet in, in every bacteria. <laughs> so, Thank you for painting that picture with your words. That's, well, I'm going to put the video. Edified, it's only eight edified by that, by what you built. I, I, you. I want you to see it, but it's too long. I mean, it's 18 minutes and you pretty much have to watch the whole video to get all of that. But so I'm going to put it in the, in the description section so everybody can see it because it's a remarkable video. But I want really to compliment is. you though. You have a gift for explaining this in a, in a visual way, because I feel as if I have the effect of seeing the video already through the words you chose. I, I literally see what I think is enough to see the import. So thank you. I would just like to say in response to it, the, the, to me, that gives me hope. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't, I mean, I, what, what you painted, I, I, I come back to the verb because it was so, it was built what you built that image, that, example i would 
I'm trying to think about things more mathematically. And I think it's a, uh, a large result of watching the meaning code, right? Because a lot of the guests here are mathematically oriented. And so it's affected my style. And I appreciate it because the, uh, the cachet of this mode of thinking is you can do a lot with less because that less is coherent. You've, you've taken, one has taken the time to make sure it, it, when it buckles, it doesn't break. And so that example of yours, I take as a similar to an example in math. When you make a definition or a claim along the way of proving what you've claimed, you give examples especially if you're highlighting a concept that will be proven. And that example of these little cells of bacteria with the triangles coming together and then the quorum clicking at such a low scale with something like bacteria, if that can generate purpose beyond the silo of itself, there's that line in the Psalms, Lord, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If a person were to degenerate so much, still those triangles would find one another and there would be a whole greater than the part. And from there, you can keep going. And here's a Petersonian, right? And we don't know the limit of that. Mm -hmm. We could... So it gives me hope that habits aren't useless in this life, even, even late in life. What does that even mean, late in life? As a Christian, there should be no such thing. <laughs> there, there, are, there are seasons and then there is grace. So we, and with that example, we have far more than three triangles. We have, we have intellects. And that also, I think, is where the heaven comes in. Of the heaven and earth. We have intellect where we can commune, to use a, a word that is ambiguous at this point, to commune with things beyond our appetites and our, our immediate visual sensations. We, we can commune with spirits. And then that should give us pause. Because maybe we don't want to commune with every spirit. Maybe we want to commune with the ones that have access to the king and walk down beautiful palaces. And if that was real and it was accessible and we had time, how do we do it? And then, and then Christianity, uh, then we, you know, we, we continue the journey we're already on. Well, I was struck with Mary Harrington when she used this word enclosure, and I can't quite remember the context of how she was using it, but but it had to do with this idea of that what's happening to us in this transhumanist world that we're in is that each of us are becoming more and more enclosed in our own little bubble, our own, you know, this is how I can change. This is what I can become as though we're not connected to the larger world at all, as if my life, is not interwoven and has no impact on anybody else's life. So I can choose exactly what I want my life to be. 
And regardless of what the needs of my family might be or what the needs of my community might be or or how I might be a benefit or blessing to anybody else, I'll just choose for myself and then I'll demand that everybody give me the respect that I demand because I'm in this enclosure. But that's like each little bacteria, when it's by itself, it's completely useless. And one of the, one of the um, examples that she used is with bioluminescent bacteria. There are not, when there are not enough bacteria in an organism, there's no bioluminescence at all. They don't shine. But once they hit that critical mass, then they begin to, to shine. Mm. And, um, and she showed this squid that is bioluminescent because it's filled up with these bacteria. Well, this is how the purpose works. Those bacteria keep growing. So um, a, a squid could become overloaded with those bacteria, too many to where it would just explode. That can't happen, right? So it turns out that this squid has a pump in it that every morning, when it goes to sleep under the water in the sunshine and it doesn't need the bioluminescent bacteria, there's a pump in its system that pumps out 95% of all the bacteria. Hmm. So there's only 5% left. And then during the rest of the day, those 5% keep duplicating, duplicating, duplicating. So that by the time nighttime rolls around and it's dark, now the squid has this light that it can use in hunting at night under the water. But it has to be protected from predators. And so the bioluminescence makes it show up to predators. So when predators are around, it has a shutter mechanism that can close off the bioluminescence. This is amazing. Yes. I would like you to know, grab one. This all just you know, happened. Exactly. May I grab a quick thing? This will take two seconds. It relates sure. to what you said. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then, then we, we need to wrap it up in a few minutes, but... I, I really can't wait for people to watch this video because it's just such a remarkable story, like you said, about purpose and how purpose. things work together for purpose. And uh, it, growing and when I in Russia, the Orthodox Church with Russia, there's a saint, Saint Seraphim. I got to I got to calm down a little bit because I, I was seeing the details of the picture you're painting. I got excited. Saint Seraphim of Sarah. Okay. He has said, he's no longer contemporary, he's a saint, went on, but famous saint in Russia and Orthodox world in general, etc. He said, acquire the Holy Spirit and thousands around you will be saved. Now, how does one acquire the Holy Spirit? by going to church and that church takes from us 95%, but the church replenishes us the next day and protects us from the gates of hell and all that actually entails. So it, it I think often throughout history, the way people have converted was not by an apologia, but 
by the mere fact of Christians going to church, grew the church from their heart. They actually, as they went and went, they found more and more reason to go and go deeper. And then that literally created light that was not there in the city. It literally does. Yeah. Uh, if, But if you don't have a sufficient number of those cells, then to use your analogy, you won't see the potential that was there. Mm-hmm. But, okay, the, the there's a prayer that literally lines up with what you had said about the bioluminescence. It is, this will take 30 seconds, if I may, just for the sake of analysis, among other things. The, is it in comp line? I think it's wonderful how your mind puts these things together, that you can find this in the work of the saints. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to say that for people mm-hmm. who find the terminology of going to church a problem, you can think of it as just uniting yourself with the body of Christ, because that's what going to church is. It's just becoming united with the body of Christ. And um, <clears throat> the body of Christ, strangely enough, is also called the bride of Christ. So exactly here okay here it is the um yeah (laughs) so a prayer for early evening by saint basil the great notice how creation is gathered and what am i saying i don't need to say anything let let saint basil say it blessed art thou o lord almighty who hast illumined the day with sunlight and has cheered and brightened the night with rays of fire, who has granted us to pass the course of the day and to approach the threshold of night. Hear our petitions and those of all thy people, and pardoning all our sins, both voluntary and involuntary, accept our evening supplications and send down the abundant mercy of thy compassion upon thine inheritance. Defend us with thy holy angels, arm us, with the armor and the weapons of thy justice. Build for us a bulwark of thy truth. Keep thy watch over us by thy power. Deliver us from every danger and from every plot of the adversary. Grant that this present evening and the coming night and all the days of our life may be perfect, holy, peaceful, and sinless, without stumbling and vain fantasy through the prayers of the Holy Theotokos and of all the saints who from the ages have been well-pleasing unto thee. Amen. Habits. Hmm. If we're willing to eat a steak, why can't we pray? <laughs> so what is that book? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a prayer book. Orthodox Christian Prayers. It can be purchased from the... Uh, monastery in the northeast called let me see if i can remember its name they made they make this book in their publishing house beautiful look at some of these pictures i know that's text like that picture Uh at any rate i'm missing the picture but uh saint tikon's bookstore saint it's it's perhaps the oldest uh orthodox monastery in america it's over 100 years old t-i-c-o-n i I think it's t-i-k-k-h-o-n oh T-I-K-K-H-O-N bookstore. 
I'll see if I can round it up and put a link in the in the description. That was a wonderful way to end, Matthew. This has been great. Um, that picture of the cross is beautiful. Oh yes, look at that. It's a tree of life. Okay. Uh huh. I see that. Yeah, I do. That's wonderful. That's a great way to end. And um, may your may your evening be blessed as you pray from your Orthodox book of prayers. You too. Have a good night, Karen. You you had your hand up like you wanted to say something. Oh no, I was just excited. You oh, have a good night. Okay. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. <laughs>